As a missionary, of course, I need to preach on missions, so I hope you'll uh, bear with me. Uh, But what else can I do, right? If I don't preach on missions, some people get angry at me, but uh, it is part of my heart. I've been doing it for 38 years. A local boy, by the way, uh, grew up down the the road here in Bryn Mawr, Ardmore area, and uh, went to Penn State, came to Christ through Campus Crusade, or now crew, uh, way back in the 70s, and got a vision for missions that uh, hasn't quit since then. So... uh, just love what we do, but uh, it's always fun to come home and plug in for the summer and, uh, and catch up on life in this part of the world. So fun to see how God is growing you and, and things like that. But uh, today I want to talk about uh, what it means to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And to get us thinking about that, uh, let me jump into a very missionary text, one we're familiar with, but uh, as we reflect on it, maybe one that God wants to use to to speak to our own hearts a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of Acts, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 8 together this morning and kind of walking through that. If you don't have a Bible, you can read it up here on the, the screen. Let me read it for you. Here we go. Luke writes there, the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I don't know if uh, you can appreciate this or not, but uh, when you think about uh, how the disciples must have been feeling at, at that time, uh, in, in a 40-day span, they went on this roller coaster of emotions. I mean, 40 days before this conversation that Jesus had with them, they were standing at the cross watching their Savior, their Lord, their Messiah get tortured, crucified, and die right before their eyes. In that moment, after two or three years of following him, dreaming dreams, having visions about the kingdom that was to come, thinking that they were going to be part and parcel of Jesus bringing in this great kingdom of God, only to see those dreams get shattered before their eyes. And then three days later, Jesus resurrected. And now for 40 days, there is Jesus with them in all of his resurrection glory and all of his resurrection power. And they must be thinking, wow, you know, Lord, it's really true. It's going to happen. But if you think about it, at that very same time, things hadn't really changed in those 40 days. Rome was still in control. Herod and Pilate were comfortably ruling the religious leaders of that day. Nothing had changed since the crucifixion, except there was now a resurrected Christ. 
And so as they were thinking about the coming of the kingdom and the fact that things are supposed to be changing, 40 days and nothing's really changed, they they come to the Lord and they begin to ask in verse 6, So Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Now, I don't know if you get what they're saying there. I mean, it's not just, Lord, are you coming back? Sometimes we ask that question. When are you coming back? But but this was, Lord, is it at this time that you restore the kingdom to Israel? And what they're saying is, is it at this time that you kick out the Romans? Is it at this time that you sit as the authority and the king? And then here's the underlying question. Is it at this time that we get our position in the kingdom, right? They were a little bit mixed in their motives, perhaps much like us. We, we come to faith in Christ. We begin to follow him as a disciple. But there's a little bit of us in that following too, right? Lord, I'll follow you, but you have to bless me. I'll follow you, but you answer my prayer. I'll follow you if you make my life more comfortable. And I think the disciples had that question in mind when they asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Because if you remember in the Gospels, they were constantly debating, you know, who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand, who's going to be the prime minister, who's going to be the finance secretary in the kingdom. And they kind of carried that with them even into the upper room. And so Jesus kind of has to call them out. And maybe he has to call us out too, because sometimes we kind of put ourselves in the center of the kingdom as well rather than Christ and his agendas. And and so Jesus calls them out. And beginning in verse uh, 7, he says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. But, big but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. I think what he was basically saying is simply this. Don't get preoccupied with the timing. Your job is not to figure out when the kingdom will come. Your job is to get busy being my witnesses until that kingdom does come in all of its fullness. And you know, Jesus was basically saying what he says to us today. What is your job as followers of Christ? What is your job as members of the body of Christ? What is your job as believers in the resurrected Jesus Christ? It's to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We call that the Great Commission, right? We know that. We are familiar with the Great Commission, right? You wouldn't be sending me there if you didn't believe in that as a church. But but here's my question for you this morning. How serious are you, personally, in listening to that command? How serious are you, personally, in living out that command to be a witness in your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? You know, for many of us, the Great Commission is kind of a a peripheral thing. We, We all know about it but it really doesn't occupy center stage in our lives. For many of us, it's a delegated thing. That's what we pay the missionaries to do. For for many of us, the Great Commission is a nice idea, but it really never rolls into any kind of action that's tangible in our own lives. And as a result of that, it really never changes us. 
Yet I would suggest to you this morning that the Great Commission must be the central part of your Christian life and experience. That the Great Commission must be the foundation for all that this church does here in this part of the world, as well as here all over the world. The Great Commission must drive us in our faith. And I make that suggestion rather boldly because there's some compelling reasons in this text to make that assertion. So in our time remaining, I'd like to just walk you through three realities of Christ's Great Commission, which I believe justify my statement that the Great Commission must play a center role in your own life. The first one is simply this, as it says there, the Great Commission is God's thing. It's God's thing. It's what he's about. And we see that in verse 8, right? There it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me, and you will be my witnesses. You will be. That's uh, a command, by the way. That's not an optional thing. That's a you might be, you can be, you uh, may be. No, it's a you will be. And it's really an imperative command which says, this is your job description. The Great Commission is not given to a special breed of Christian here. When Jesus gave this command, the disciples were there, the apostles were there, but it wasn't just them that he was speaking to. There in that upper room were all of the followers of Christ who had remained faithful and true, 120 believers, men and women, that were gathered in the upper room and told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. 120 men and women who remained faithful and true after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. These were his true followers of Christ. And what does he say to them? You, all of you, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. It's not an optional thing for us as Christ's followers. You know, many people think, you know, witnessing, that's for the youth, right? Missions, that's for the youth. We send out our, our, our youth mission trip every summer and we send them. That, that's a great thing. And, and as long as we're doing that, we think we've done our part. And, and praise God that you send out mission teams. I'm grateful for your partnership with us. But it's not a delegated thing. Others will tell me, you know, Dave, you know, when I was younger, you know, when, when I was zealous to, to share my faith and to, to be a witness. But, you know, over the years, I've gotten kind of busy in life. And, and somehow that passion, that vision, that commitment to, to, to share the gospel, to tell people about how Christ has changed you, somehow takes a back burner. Just... A couple weeks back, my wife and I were doing our missionary furlough thing, visiting different supporters and supporting churches. And we're on a road trip and, and arranged to stay at a house of a couple we didn't really know, but they were friends of our, friends of friends. And, and so they arranged it. And these were people that used to be involved uh, in, in one of the student, the student ministry I was involved in. And, and they had been campus leaders back in the day at their university. In fact, the guy was so committed that after high school, before he went to university, he did a one-year Bible program at a, at a local Bible school just so he'd have the foundation so that he could really be a spiritual leader on his university campus. 
And then for four years, he led the ministry, the movement, building disciples, reaching their campus for Christ, going on summer mission trips, you know, sending people out, and they saw tremendous things happen. But when we talk with him, somehow that fire, somehow that vision, somehow that passion for the the Lord's kingdom was replaced so that the most exciting thing in his life at this time is membership in a tennis club. Nothing wrong with tennis. I'm about to enjoy Wimbledon, you know, and my wife is, uh, my, my greatest competition in life is Roger Federer. So uh, I, I like tennis. Nothing wrong with being part of a tennis club and, and using that perhaps as a platform to be a witness, but I didn't hear that in what they said. They were still members of a church, a good evangelical Christian church, but I didn't see a passion. I didn't see a vision. I didn't see a fire that had once been there. And my heart was saddened because somehow God's vision was replaced by another vision. And and here's the thing. The Great Commission is so crucial that we can't let that passion be snuffed out. Why? Why is it so urgent that we hang on to that? Well, simply this. The stakes are just too high. If we don't go, people don't hear. If we don't speak, people remain in darkness. If we're not obedient, there are literally millions, billions, that will die without knowing who Jesus is. And God's heart breaks. If we don't speak up, who's going to prepare them to enter eternity? The reality that dawned on me years back when I was actually working in a summer job for seven years, I worked as an orderly down in Presbyterian Hospital in West Philly. And uh, every summer I'd get assigned to a different department. And and one summer I was assigned um, to be working in the cancer ward. In those days, cancer research was pretty sparse and all they knew how to do was radiate things. And so my job was to take these people from their bed every morning and slide them across to a stretcher and roll them down to the second floor to the x-ray department where they would get literally nuked with radiation. And it was painful and it was difficult. And in many cases, these people were in total agony just moving from bed to stretcher. And my heart would break. And I would do all that I could in my power to try to make that short journey to the x-ray therapy department as painless and as endurable as I could. And, and I put on all of my uh, bedside manner, and I chatted, and I was pleasant, and I would talk with them, and I would try to answer their questions, and I would do everything, so much so that uh, people took notice, my supervisor, the nurses, the doctors, and it resulted in, when I was in high school, getting nominated as who's who an American high school student because of my bedside manner and my care. I did a good job of helping them. But here's what dawned on me one day. As a new Christian who was growing in his faith in Jesus Christ, one Friday I said goodbye to the floor I went home, spent the weekend down at Ocean City with my friends, came back on Monday morning, and half of the floor was dead. 
several of the people that I had wheeled and cared for and been so nice to were gone. And it dawned on me at that point as a new Christian, I don't know where those people are. I don't know if they know the Lord or not. I don't know. And I didn't do anything about it. And that was a wake-up call for me. The urgency of the hour. And it's something the Lord put in my heart, and he's kept it there for all these years. The Great Commission is a God thing. And if we're going to follow Christ, it's got to be our thing as well. The second reality is simply this. The Great Commission is not only God's thing, it is a God thing, meaning God is the one who does it, right? How many times have we said, oh, I could never be a witness like you, Dave. I don't have the training. I don't have a seminary education. I, I'm a shy person. I'm a t-. We all have our excuses. But, but, you know, this text that we're looking at this morning doesn't let us step into those excuses. You can't get off the hook because what does it say? In, in verse 8 again, it says this, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What comes first? The power of the Holy Spirit. It's God at work in you and through you into the hearts of the people we go out to see that does the job. And our job is simply to be a witness. You know, when you think about fulfilling the Great Commission, it's an impossible task. Who can change a heart? Who can change somebody's mind? I mean, really change them. Who can change a life direction? Who can speak life into somebody so that they come alive to spiritual things? Who can open blind eyes? I can't. You can't, but God does. His Spirit works ahead of us. Last May, while I was still in the Philippines, uh, we're on summer break there. April and May is summer in the Philippines. And during the summer, we send our students on internships. And one of the guys that's in my mentoring group is a young Filipino youth pastor. And he went back home to work in his church and, and was part of this internship team that was training his disciples how to do campus ministry in a nearby university. And, and so one Saturday, he invited me down to help him to do an evangelism training. And I remember I got down there, I was a little bit late because of traffic, and I walked in and they'd already introduced and done the first part of the training. And they're in this group of of about 25 students and a few adults who kind of tagged along. They had just been told that at the end of the training that day, the last two hours of the training, they were actually going to go out into the community and share their faith. And I walked in and it was like someone had just died in the room. I mean, there was just panic on people's eyes. Me? Share my faith? I mean, it was just, people were just fearful and timid, and there was this sense of heaviness in the room. Oh my gosh, you're going to actually make me do this? And I just kind of chuckled because I remember feeling the same way. And I remember I got up and I I just shared something that, again, that stuck with me for years. It's something that I read once in a a short little booklet on, on how to witness in the power of the Spirit, written by Dr. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. But he defined witnessing this way. He said, success in witnessing is simply sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. My job, share. God's job, the rest, right? All I do is share in the power of the Holy Spirit and I leave the results to God. 
However they respond, that's not my job. God touches hearts. And I remember sharing that with these people, praying for these people, and sending them out in fear and trembling, but with some expectancy and some faith. Two hours later, they came back. You wouldn't believe the difference in the atmosphere in that room. People were just bubbling. They were excited. They were just joyful. Many people had the opportunity to lead someone to Christ that day. And it was like, wow, God actually used me. I mean, just with a few hours of training, I went out and I told people. In fact, some were so excited, they actually brought the people back with them that they had led to Christ. One gal came up and said, this is Maricel. She works at the department store as a sales girl in the mall. And I led her to Christ. And she's here to say, you know, she knows Jesus now. And then here is uh, Albert. He, he sells balut. It's a fertilized duck egg that's a kind of street food in the Philippines. And uh, he's a balut salesman on the street. And he just gave his life to Jesus. He's now your brother in Christ. Hallelujah. And, and the stories went on and on and on. And, and you know, it just dawned on these people that if they're willing to step into the Holy Spirit in obedience, God will use them. Because the Holy Spirit is the key. Because the Great Commission is God's thing. And it's also a God thing. God will do it. But you've got to be willing to step in and to obey, right? If you don't go, the Holy Spirit doesn't work. At least not in you. Many are fearful. Many are timid. Many say, I don't have what it takes. And the truth is, you don't, and I don't. But God does. And all you need to do is step in and let him do the work. If we do, we see amazing things happen. Where God opens blind eyes and touches hard hearts And spiritual birth takes place right before your eyes. You fathers out there, think back to the time when your wife gave birth and your first child. I remember when my wife gave birth. uh, Lamaze was a big thing in the Philippines in those days, and and only a few doctors were doing that. And so we got special permission for me to be there. And, And I was right there at the birth of our first son, Ryan. And I remember, you know, as the baby came out and, and, and just seeing this child with ten fingers and ten toes and two eyes and, and, and squawking up a storm and, and just this life that was right before my eyes. I, it was an awesome experience, but it was also a God moment. And perhaps, dads, you remember that, right? Just, wow, how awesome. How awesome is this God who gives life and gives this child to us. And, but I also remember something else. When, when they wrapped the child in, and, and put him in my arms, and I looked down into this little face, and I thought, this is a God thing. But then I also thought, but I had a part in this too. <laughs> and I think that's how the Great Commission is supposed to be. It's clearly a God thing. God does the work, but he gives us a part in it too. It's like we open the door, and he ushers people into the kingdom. But we've got to step into that or we lose the opportunity to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is God's thing. It's what he's about. The Great Commission is a God thing. It's really all about him working and us just following along, tagging along as uh, partners in that. 
And finally, and I'll close with this, the Great Commission is a doable thing. You know, some people hear about that and think, reaching the world for Christ, going to the ends of the earth, I could never do that. I mean, I'm not going to get in a plane and go there. And even if I did, what could my life do? How can I reach, what is it, 7.5 billion people for Christ, half of which still have never heard the name of Jesus? Even if I get obedient, what, what could my life do? And when we kind of excuse ourselves, thinking the task is too great, the task is too big, I don't have the opportunity, and we kind of step back. And yet I'd like to encourage you that, again, when Jesus spoke into the lives of 120 people, he spoke into their lives and gave them this command, knowing full well that the Great Commission was doable in and through them and continues to be doable in and through us. And so once again, in verse 8, he closes off by simply saying this, You will be my witnesses. How? In Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And here's the catch. Many times when we hear the Great Commission, we're thinking about getting on an airplane and going to the end of the earth. And I would say that you know, 96% of you will never do that and aren't called to do that. But you are called to reach your Jerusalem for Christ. You see, the ends of the earth starts in your Jerusalem. That's all God wants you to do, is look around you. Look at your family. Look at your neighbors. Look at your office mates. Look at people in the community where you live, in the social organizations you're involved with, in the schools. Look around you. That's your Jerusalem. And here's the beautiful picture, and it's how Jesus laid it out. Start in your Jerusalem, he says, and then let it spill over into your Judea, into your Samaria, and ultimately into the end of the age. And here's the beauty. If you are faithful to be a witness in your Jerusalem, even if you never cross the county line, if you never get on an airplane, some of the people you witness to will. Some of the people you share Christ with will ultimately get transferred to another city, to another place, even to another country. Some of them will share with other people who will go back. And pretty soon there'll be this ripple effect. And really what Jesus is telling his disciples is simply this. You be faithful to reach your Jerusalem. And that impact will ripple down into the neighboring provinces of Judea, Samaria, and ultimately find its way into the ends of the earth. God has probably not called too many of you into foreign missions. If he has, come and join me. Philippines is a great place to serve. But the reality is he probably hasn't called too many of you, but he has called all of you to reach your Jerusalem. It's a strategy that's simple. We call it spiritual multiplication. Jesus said it in a way in Acts 1.8. Paul captures it maybe a little more uh, mathematically perhaps in 2 Timothy 2.2. And I just want to close with this text. Paul wrote it this way, writing to his, his faithful disciple Timothy. He says this, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What he's saying is, Timothy, I've been teaching you, discipling you, mentoring you. Now I want you to go out and find a few faithful men. And I want you to do the same thing to them. 
Just pour your life into them. But not just building them up, teaching them to do the same thing. And I want to close with this take-home for you. How do you reach your Jerusalem? This year. just want you to pray and ask God, God, can you give me one faithful man, one faithful woman that I can pour my life into this year? For the next 365 days, God, I'm looking for trusting that you're going to bring somebody into my life. Might be somebody here at the church that's new, that's not plugged in. It might be a neighbor. It might be someone at your office. Somebody that you can begin to pour your life into. You may have to share the gospel with them. You may have to build a relationship that leads to a faith decision for Christ someday. Whatever, but you're going to pour your life into that person for the next 365 days. I'm not asking you to reach 8 billion people for Christ. I am asking you to reach one. Is that a doable thing? Maybe a faith thing, but it's a doable thing. If you would do that, so that at the end of that 365 days next year, if I was to come back and visit, and that person was sitting next to you, and I would ask you to stand, now it's not just you, it's two. And you're both doing it the next year, and then I come back two years from now, and there's four of you, and then there's 16, and then there's, you know the math, right? Do you know that in 32 years, I don't know if I'm going to make it 32 years. I might. Most of you will. In 32 years, if you were the only Christian in the world and you were faithful to just obey this command, you would have more disciples than 8.5 billion people. You'd reach the world for Christ and then some. It's a doable strategy because God doesn't ask you to reach all of those people out there. He only asks you to reach your Jerusalem. Pour your life into one person. Give them a vision to do the same, and it'll ripple out to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. question is, are you willing to step into that? Are you willing to say, Lord, the Great Commission is your thing, so it better be my thing. The Great Commission is a God thing, so I need you, Holy Spirit, to empower me, to help me to stay faithful, But I also go with the knowledge and the faith that if I go, you will go ahead of me and prepare the way. And lastly, the Great Commission is a doable thing. All God asks is that you find one faithful person, pour your life into them, and do that every year until he comes again. And if we do that, we will see his church expand and explode and grow all over the world, as it is doing, as others are doing the same thing. So I close with this question. At the beginning, the disciples asked, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? And maybe the better question for us isn't, Lord, when are you coming back? But rather, it's, Lord, what am I doing in the meantime? If you were coming back next year, how would that change your life? If you knew that Christ was coming back definitively a year from today, would that change your priorities? Would that change your relationships? Would that change the way you invested your time and your money and how you spent time with family? What would change if you knew Christ was coming back next year? And he said, don't worry about the time. Know that I am coming back. The kingdom will come in all of its fullness. In the meantime, you be my witnesses. Let that be your center calling and your center task. 
And I pray that you would uh, hear the words of the Lord because that command is given to all of us. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, in many ways, the world has radically changed since the days of the first disciples in the upper room. But in many ways, our hearts are just the same as theirs, quaking with fear and timidity, afraid of people's reaction, afraid of persecution, afraid that we don't know the next steps, confused, and yet hopeful and expectant because you are there. And that hasn't changed because, Holy Spirit, you are here with us today with the same power and the same promise and the same purpose that you gave your church 2,000 years ago. So God, may we, not only as a church, because I know this church does, but as individuals, step up and into your purposes, that the Great Commission would be a central part of who we are as Christ followers, and that we would have a vision and a passion to multiply our lives one person at a time so that first our Jerusalem, then our Judea, Samaria, and ultimately then the ends of the earth come to discover who you are and how great our God is. Make us faithful. Lord, if there's people here that have been stirred, if there's people here that have just sensed a conviction of your spirit, I pray especially for them right now that, God, you would confirm that prompting in their hearts and in their lives, that you might even at this moment bring to mind one person that they could reach out to, one person that they could begin to pour their lives into. And I pray that uh, as they get up from this room today, you'd not let that name and that face go until they would reach out and make connection. Would you be glorified through that and in us? For we pray this in Christ's name, amen and amen.